You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His Gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Let me just read a little bit more from uh, Philippians from chapter 2, verse 5. Christ Jesus, who... Existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I um, don't know exactly when those words really began to sink in for me but I know I still need them to sink in that God exalts most highly the one who humbled himself most lowly completely turns everything around as to what we think is high and mighty and worthy in this world. But that Jesus humbled himself for us and for our salvation, for for my inclusion in something uh, way bigger and way better than what my own self-advancement could bring in life, completely turns everything around as to what I think about me and what I think about you as well. So I can think a few passages that shine meaning and motivation into life more. He died for me. He died for you in astonishing humility, though he has all majesty to save the unworthy. And God the Father thinks it is so amazing and so worthy and so necessary that all heaven and earth will acknowledge forever the glorious worth of Jesus This is the greatest triumph secured through the most incredible means by the Lord himself. And long after all that we have ever thought is great and wonderful, long after the most profound advancements of humanity have been forgotten, this building, (laughs) this city down the road here, the truth of his wonder will continue to be echoed forever and ever, And not for one second will its impact and its enjoyment make way for something more worthy. For something more worthy is inconceivable in the mind of God. So the gospel will advance and be celebrated forever. Such is the worth of Christ. That's history's glorious trajectory. He died for me so I could live for that. For, for him. Like what, what an honour that is. What an astonishing honour. If you want to waste your life, live and strive for the advancement of something less than Christ. Right? If you want to make the most of your life, trust God in such a way that you give it over to Christ in trust, such that your family your workplace, your, your wealth, your opportunities, your education, your skills, your future can be leveraged 
not for self-advancement, but in honour of him who's given you everything you have anyway, and now in the gospel, so much more. If he died for me, I'll live for him. All right. it's, it's the radical call of the gospel. That's what the Philippians were doing, and, and they were doing it together. That's what the Philippians were supporting together in partnership. How does that work? What, what, does that, what does it look like? Like, what does gospel advancement look like in partnership together? Well, it looks like radical humility for the sake of Christ, like Christ. All right. He died for me, I will live for Him, yes, but He died for me and I will live like Him as well. For the advance of the greatest of things, for eternal joy. This is what our next this passage here in Philippians is, is going to bring out. Paul writes to his partners in the gospel, calling them to worthy action. Back in chapter 1, verse 27, he's, he's urged them to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is, let your way of life point to how great Jesus is. Let's live to make Jesus look awesome. <laughs> Unfortunately, many Christians can live in such a way that makes Jesus look awful. Okay, now, awesome, awful, sort of similar words, but big difference, all right? Um, I'm sure many of you are super encouraged that there are, there are now more Christians in China than members of the Communist Party, okay? Now, I don't even know how, but what, what's the latest, 70 million, 100 million? Like, it's just a massive amount of people. And that, that sort of figure of, of those who are Christians in China was unthinkable a few years ago, when the state tried to make Jesus look awful, and they failed. Right. Uh, I, I read that in, in Iran, in, in 1979, apart from expatriates who were living in the country, there were maybe just 500 Christians in all of Iran. Right. And Christians have been, have been heavily persecuted, especially since that time, since 1979. They've sought to make Jesus look awful in Iran. But, but I don't know if you know, but in the last 20 years, more Iranians have become Christians than in the last 13 centuries put together. There's hundreds of thousands of people. So someone, someone in Iran has been living in such a way to make Jesus look great. <laughs> to show that he's worth everything, worth living for, worth dying for. Indeed, lots of people have been doing it. Someone in China was advancing the gospel in such a way that showed the supreme worth and privilege of belonging to Jesus before belonging to party. Indeed, millions have, haven't they? And the impetus to do so has come from passages like this in Philippians, where the apostle was jailed and made to look awful, and yet through him the, great, the, the greatness of Jesus was made known all the more. And, and, and don't you long for the same thing to happen in our country today? Don't you long? I mean, I am, I must be, someone from Canberra, I worry about Melbourne, right? I, and it, I, I worry that soon this city will be the biggest city in the country and there's not enough gospel witness. It, it worries me. It, it, it needs, it, it needs a lot of prayer, it needs a lot of work. 
Because in our culture at the moment, moves are afoot to make Christianity look awful and backward and, and, and re- repressive. That, but that Christians would live in such a way as to show how wonderful and worthy Jesus is. Don't we want that? Well, we are called to put the advancement of the gospel before anything else, but accompanied with the right humble mindset. And this is what partnership looks like and uh, what our passage leads to. So verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, fear and trembling is the posture of humility, okay? Um, And it's hard not to be humble in view of what Jesus was prepared to do for us in humility. He did that for me, this Salvation then is, is, is precious. He says, work out your salvation, be active, be engaged with fear and trembling. Of course, he doesn't say work for your salvation with fear and trembling. He's, he says, work out for Christ actually worked for our salvation, didn't he? We don't work in order to have it. We work because we have it. And what a relief to not have to work for it. What a relief to not have to earn it. Instead, we get to express it. But more than that, verse 13, he says, For it's God who's working in you, both to will and to work according to His good purpose. That is, God is with His people as we step out and pursue the advance of the gospel together. We will find that He's already been at work paving the way making plans possible, seeing lives change. And I wonder, do you recall uh, stepping out boldly in trust of Jesus in something and you were sure everything was going to go completely wrong? This would never work. This would be utterly useless. No one is going to show up. I'm going to be embarrassed. And do you remember the, the joy of it so not being like that? As if God met you in your obedience to his will. And you remember the joy of that? I hope you've experienced that. You remember the joy of that? God is using me for his plans. And so the the safest course is always to boldly step out in humble obedience and trust. Like Jesus, like like Paul. And uh, I'm pleased, he says, to do it with fear and trembling because it helps protect us against what can so dampen the advance of the gospel, what can stall progress. And it's when the partnership, which should be unified with each other in humility, turns against each other in whinging and arguing. (coughs) Verse 14, he says, Do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation. Grumbling and complaining pours cold water on gospel advance. Takes our eyes off what we're meant to be doing, distracts us with hurts and wounds, inflicts us with squabbles over who gets what and why. Paul says this is wor- it's worldly. All right? Um, It's what Israel did in the wilderness as they were overcome with worldliness and whining. And one key way of working out our salvation is by avoiding grumbling at each other. Do you know that? (laughs) Avoid grumbling at each other. But I tell you, going more than half an hour without complaining about something is actually really hard. 
especially at church, okay? Because the music's too loud and the room's too cold and the supper is too wet and the kids are too distracting and the welcome team is too nice (laughs) and that pastor is too pushy or that pastor is too indecisive and the talk is too long or the talk is too short and the passage is too hard or the passage is too easy and they ask too much of me or they ask me too little, why is the logo now orange? It, sh- it should be green. No, I prefer blue. You think, what, is, what is going on, you see? Getting stuff done and getting along with others are massive challenges. That's pretty much what life's about, actually. Getting stuff done and getting along with others. It's a massive challenge for any partnership. Getting the right stuff done for gospel advance and humbly serving others before yourself makes for a very special Jesus-trusting partnership, doesn't it, friends? Consider again where Paul is as he writes this. He's in prison. I wonder how the heating was when a few met in his cell to pray and try and plan the mission to the known world. Because that's what they were doing. You know, optimal conditions? Was Timothy having a meltdown that his bandwidth was being slowed down by Luke's live streaming? Was Luke upset with Timothy because once again he orders in a chai latte when you specifically said flat white? Like, can't you get this right? right? Now, that's not to say that we should make church as annoyingly difficult as possible and just grin and bear it. Not at all. And it's not to say that hugely disappointing and painful things don't happen in life and in church life. They do. But if salvation is already secured, if if God is with us as we seek to advance the gospel, if we were served with such humility, don't you think we couldn't be a little different? Actually, that's what Paul says, isn't it? By not grumbling and arguing in self-interest, We shine like lights in this dark world, holding out the word of life. Shining lights, that actually comes from Daniel chapter 12, where Daniel sees a day where those who live differently will turn others to righteousness. Great passage. In the partnership, instead of grumbling talk, there's gracious talk. Instead of whinging, there's wonder. Instead of curses, there's kindness. Instead of getting what you want, there's giving others what they need. Instead of agitating for your rights, there's the longing to forgive others' wrongs. Which sounds just like the mindset of Christ, doesn't it? Which sounds like a great partnership to be part of. Now, let me say, I actually love the fact that that my church back home in Canberra is not full of grumbling and disputing, unless I'm missing something. And I am cheered to hear that such things like grumbling and disputing do not flavour or abound in Cross and Crown, unless I'm missing something or unless Adam's hiding details from me, all right? But again, remember, the Philippian church is going well. It's a great church and yet the warning is here. So the warning is here to hold out the word of life, the gospel word in gratitude, not hold out the grumbling life because we're not getting what we want. For in Christ, actually losing your life to see the things of the gospel advance is joyous gain. 
Uh, what does Paul say? Verse 17, but even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says he's happy to be poured out. That's, it's, it's sacrificial language. Have his life poured out for their good in seeing Jesus honoured, in making Jesus look great. Paul is pouring out his life in gratitude, not pouring out his life in grumbling. And so partnership in Christ looks like partnership with Christ, having the same mind of humble service, bold for the gospel, humble before all people. And this is where Paul now talks up two of his companions for showing exactly that. We've got these great living illustrations here. Uh, Timothy, firstly, who, for, who foregoes interest for the sake of others, and Epaphroditus, who foregoes life for the sake of others. Firstly, Timothy, um, whom Paul is planning to send to Philippi to encourage and serve them, which is very generous of Paul, by the way. Um, Paul sends his best. But he says, verse 19, For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests or seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So Paul could have sent any number of people, I suppose, to encourage them. But people are prone to do things for their own interest, but not Timothy. Like he's not dying to combine this trip to Philippi with a holiday. Uh, he's, not, he's not dying to try Philippian cuisine. He's not doing it because Paul will write him a good reference for the future. He's not asking what's in it for me. You know, why should I put my life on the line and do this? I'm never going to get a girlfriend in Rome now if I've got to go to Philippi, right? He's not, he's not doing that. No, he's genuinely concerned for their welfare, who are under threat from Rome as well. And do you notice here, Paul says, the reason Timothy is genuinely concerned for them is because he seeks the interests of Christ. Right? Here's a man who says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He can genuinely care for them because he's interested in the advance and wonder and worth of Jesus in and through them. And he'll humbly take this long and treacherous trip with the mind of Christ, humble, servant-hearted, gospel-soaked. Someone is most concerned for your welfare if they put the interest of Jesus for you first. Okay? Someone is most concerned for your welfare if they put the interests of Jesus for you first. Okay. So that's, uh, that's Timothy. And then there's another man Paul mentions as well who was actually delivered this letter. Verse 25, But I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need. So Epaphroditus was sent to Paul from Philippi, bringing vital support. Uh, in prison in the first century, you relied upon friends and relatives to get you food and to nurse your wounds and to look after your affairs and to bring you clothes and to keep you company. And Epaphroditus has travelled hundreds of miles to support Paul as an expression of, the, of partnership from the Philippian church to support the advancement of the gospel. He's, he's gone with goodies, all right? And, and he's gone with money. No money, no mission. 
The gospel partnership invests in gospel promotion. One sure way to stop the progress of the gospel is to stop giving to the gospel. So basically, he's a courier, <coughs> which, which was not especially glamorous. He travels hundreds of miles to what is becoming the center of worldwide and systematic Christian persecution, to prison, to the lion's den. That's where he's going. It's not a holiday. Who wants that gig? The word went out in, in Philippi. Well, we've got to do something. We've got to help Paul. Who wants that gig? Epaphroditus puts up his hand. I'll go. I'll do it. Now, it, it's almost killed him. That's the point. It almost killed him. Paul's going to send him back. Verse 26. Since he's been longing for all of you and, and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was so sick he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. For this reason, I'm very eager to send him, so that you may rejoice again when you see him, and I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and hold people like him in honour, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. Now, we're not told if it was the food that Timothy was preparing that got him sick or some nasty bug from visiting Paul in prison or whether he fell ill before making it to Rome. We just don't know. Any of those things are possible. But he's nearly died to bring the Philippian blessing to Paul. That means he's put, he's put this gift, this support for the gospel, this love for gospel partnership before his life. Like he's risked it for the advance of the gospel. And rather than Paul saying, you know, please don't take risks like Epaphroditus. Rather than say, please make sure a full risk assessment has been done before you give someone the green light to come to me next time. Like instead of saying, look, if you're feeling a bit unwell, don't worry about it. You know, you need to put your health first. Paul says, enjoy him and honour him for risking his life for Jesus. Epaphroditus knew this support, this money would advance the gospel and he puts months on hold, months of his life on hold, he puts his health in second place to see the job done, to see the work supported and we would not have this letter without him actually. So Timothy puts his interests aside, Epaphroditus puts his life aside because they both had the mind of Christ. That's, that's, that's the point. Both with humble, servant-hearted love for others, because Jesus had the same humble, servant-hearted love for them. And if his love meant salvation for them, they will have the same attitude. They'll work out their salvation, which they can never lose, so as to bring blessing to others that they might forever gain. So just the, the, the logic is there, you see, the mind of Christ. With this attitude, you see, the gospel advances. With this attitude, Jesus looks awesome. And the world needs Christians desperately, with fear and trembling, to work out their salvation like this. To take some risks, to put Jesus' advancement first. I mean, can you just imagine if every Christian in Melbourne shared this attitude? Wow! Can you imagine a partnership working like this? honouring 
peace. Now, if you are a Christian, you have been given the mind. You have the mind of Christ. You've been given the mind of Christ. It's God's gift to you to bring lasting joy to you and others, to bring glory to your Saviour. And it's a gift that is given to be used to step out in action. Now, you might think, well, I can't be like Jesus. I can't pull this off. I'm a, I'm a selfish brute. Yes, well, so am I. But if God has secured your salvation, if, and if God is at work to will and to act His good purposes in you, what, do you think you're more powerful than God? That in your mighty power, it's just impossible for God to use you? That's a bit, that's a bit proud, isn't it? <laughs> really? From what I can see, the Bible is full of selfish brutes, <laughs> but God captured them God did a work in them. God started something in them that they then exercised and worked out and which he brings to completion. It's pretty hard to grumble before the cross of Jesus, isn't it? Pretty hard to grumble. It's hard to think you're better than others in view of what Jesus has done for you. Ask God to awaken the mind of Christ in you. Be bold to offer gracious words instead of critical. Be brave to offer to serve and give to see others grow in the gospel. You might do so in some fear and trepidation, perhaps some fear and trembling. Good. Working out what God has done, working what God, with what God is doing in you. Let me think for a moment where your... Um, energies in life go think of all the effort that's expended in so many areas of life many necessary areas many probably unnecessary areas as well but how much is actually exerted for the gospel well what are you working out it's a it's a probing question but i think it's the right one because what you are working at what you're working out is, is actually what you're advancing isn't it and I think the very best place to be is where you maximise your efforts in the advance of the gospel, in the advance of the best of things. And to be in a partnership that encourages that is actually a wonderful safety for us. It's one of the, one of the reasons you should, should never treat being at church lightly. Don't, don't drift and be casual about being at church. It's, it's safety for you. It's very, very important. But to think about how to maximise your efforts in the advance of the gospel, you're, you're, you're thinking, you're praying, you're serving, you're spending, you're loving, you're playing, you're planning. It doesn't mean you leave your job necessarily, not at all, but it does mean that you do it differently with the mind of Christ. It doesn't mean you leave your family, but you do family with a different, different intentionality, with the mind of Christ. It doesn't mean you never have a holiday, but it means you holiday with different kind of motives, with the mind of Christ. It doesn't mean you necessarily come to church more, but you come to church for more with the mind of Christ. With the mind of Christ, you, you, you see things differently and, and you, you work out differently. We seek to live our lives in such a way that points to His ultimate worth and advancing the gospel in humble service of others is what partnership in Christ is all about. 
And I'm so thankful for so many here at Cross and Crown who, who have joined in, who, who, who serve with deep humility, and I can see it. And I, and I know what a, a, you know, a new church, a new congregation is like, and getting that goodness, getting it going, it's such a, it's such a massive undertaking. Um, and so I think of those who get to church hours before the Sunday meeting starts and they set things up. Why, why are they doing that? Well, they're doing that for the advance of the gospel. And then I think of this, you know, the, the, the team that serve, the, the, the comms team that serve. Why, why all the cables and stuff, why are they doing that humbly? Well, they're doing it for the advance of the gospel. And those who give up their time on, on your hospitality teams and who put in all those hours to lead your BLTs, why are they doing that? Or, or for those who don't actually earn very much money at all, but who give to church such that they go without some of the things others of us might take for granted. Why? Well, it's humbly for the advance of the gospel. For those who've been treated perhaps even quite rudely by a brother or sister, but who contribute and continue to speak graciously and kindly about them before others and before them, why would you do that? so as not to stifle the advance of the gospel. For those who said to themselves, last Sunday morning, there's no way I'm in any mood to get to church later today, and yet you went anyway, and you're so thankful you did, because the advance of the gospel matters, and the mind of Christ is in them, you see. To live is Christ, to die to self is gain, because there's no better pursuit to live for there's no more important pursuit worth dying for. People actually give up their lives for far less. Christ offers us so much more. My friend, God views as most glorious and most important the advance of the gospel. He, he calls you to benefit from it and to work out in pursuit of it. I just don't want anyone here to say at the end of their life, I wasted it in the wrong pursuit. Of course, what this, uh, what this world and what our sinful nature says to us is that if we give ourselves too much to the advance of the gospel, we might miss out on something. We might miss out on life. We might waste it. So we've, we've got to somehow pursue Jesus in moderation. The great fear that being too serious about Jesus, living too much in trust of Him, might mean not reaching your potential. Or, if you invest too much in the advance of the gospel, it, it will limit your options later on in life. You know, if you exert too much time and energy into the advance of the gospel, your, your bucket list of dreams will never be realised. Okay? Now, I've thought about this. I don't think... I could be wrong, but I do not think they're going to be singing songs about the adventure of climbing Mount Kilimanjaro in heaven. All right? There will not be choruses about those who collected a million frequent flyer points. We're going to be singing about Jesus. I don't think there's going to be much excitement in heaven about the amazing timing of your earthly financial investments. It won't mean a thing. Nothing. Because the elation will be about the eternal returns of the Jesus investment. Right? Not a word will be spoken of 
the worldly social connections or the high achievers you may have rubbed shoulders with. Not a single verse or heavenly street name will honour any of that whatsoever. Because what is honoured is Christ and those who are bold in their trust and humble in their love to see the gospel advance and not themselves. I don't think the new Jerusalem will be any less wonderful because you didn't manage to visit the old one. Okay? Doesn't matter. Heaven won't be weeping for how much of your bucket list you failed to get to. Indeed, heaven will rejoice in how much you were protected from it, probably, because you found something great to live for. In partnership with others, advancing boldly and humbly, the name that is above every name, nothing wasted, all done for Christ, is gain. Nothing wasted, all that's done for Christ, is gain. So we have but one life to live before eternity begins. Let's live it well in view of where eternity is heading. I've um, served at, at, at our church, my church in Canberra, some 20 years now. And, and it's been my great, great joy to see so many put Jesus first and his advancement first and 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 they are spending their lives in humility making him known it, it, it is amazing it's terrific stuff wonderful great joy but then there's the hard stuff of many people who were in our midst who had the truth of the gospel in their hands in their ears courage and humility for jesus it was, it was right there to be grabbed a hold of. They, they sang the songs and they served on the rosters and they were a joy to have around. And then they walked away. And, and the beauty and the wonder of Jesus was not enough. And, and it, it is, it's heartbreaking. It's gutting. One life, friends, before eternity... I don't want to waste it. God would have you spend it joyfully in trust of your Saviour. One life to live. How will you live it? How will you work it? Let me encourage you and challenge you with with one such life as we uh, finish up. William Borden um, was the son of an extremely extremely wealthy family. At, uh, at age 16, he returned from around the world tour, having already informed his family that he wanted to prepare to become a missionary, uh, even though he was told he was throwing his life away doing such a thing. He was determined and wrote in the back of his Bible the words, no reserve, no reserve. Uh, he entered Yale University in 1905 and was so upset by the lack of gospel purpose about the place He began meeting with a couple of friends to read the Bible and pray together. And by the end of that year, 150 of the first years were in such groups. In his journal, he had the words, kind of as his personal resolve, um, notice self 
and yes to Jesus every time. That's a good motto, isn't it? No to self. Yes to Jesus every time. Uh, By the final year at Yale, even though there was opposition from the faculty, a thousand of the 1,300 students were meeting in these groups. Many of whom had been converted through the labours and deliberate plan of Borden to try and reach every student he could. He was extraordinarily uh, generous. Um, it was at J.P. Morgan who went down in the Titanic and gave a lot of money away. This, this, fam- this, this guy gave way, way more. It was just, just, just astonishing, astonishingly generous. Gave much of his fortune away. He cared for widows and orphans. He was passionate about mission. And he'd set his sights on going to what was thought to be one of the most difficult assignments on the planet, which was a Muslim people group in in just a very remote part of China. And having graduated Yale, he was offered many high-paying jobs, which he turned down to, to further prepare for mission. This time, he wrote in his Bible, no retreat. Okay. After graduating from Princeton... He was involved in a, in, a, in a mission on 30 US campuses where, which was some of the most fruit, fruitful gospel work that had ever happened on campus in the US. In December 1912, he sailed to Arabic language school in Cairo where within the first two weeks of his arrival, he had organised the other seminary students to distribute the conversion story of a former Muslim to the entire city, some 800,000 copies. So talk about a gifted, industrious, generous, gospel-driven man, right? He's just complete, wow. (laughs) But he never made it to China. He never made it. The place he'd prayed for and longed to serve for within three months of his arrival in Cairo, he contracted cerebral meningitis and on the 15th of April 1913, he died. Now, under his pillow were found these words. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. Uh, Most US papers actually carry the story and thousands of copies of his biography Get this, actually (laughs) made it into every province of China. His story later that year resolved in the most powerful appeal for missionary service that the then student volunteer movement had ever known. One of the professors at Yale, Charles Erdman, summed it up with these words, which I understand are still on his tombstone to this day in Cairo, apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Apart from Christ, there is no explanation such a life with the mind of Christ 
putting his interests aside because he was more interested in Jesus. Putting his life aside because the gospel comes first. Now, we are not all called to do exactly what William Borden did. Not at all. And sometimes there's a problem with these sort of stories because we feel guilty. (laughs) I don't want you to feel guilty. I want you to feel inspired. His was not a wasted life. So cross and crown, fellow believers, let's not waste ours either, okay? Let's not waste ours. Let me pray. Now, Father, please go to work in us that with humility and boldness we would advance what truly matters. Protect this partnership, this church from anything less and give us opportunity right now to joyfully put your word into practice. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.